This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. What can we do to build a culture more welcoming of life and more devoted to upholding human dignity? Many might think those to be worthy pursuits but have no idea what to actually do about it. Well, you know who not only has good ideas, but is putting those ideas into practice? My guest on today's show. I'm joined today by Jessica Keating, who serves as the Director of the Office of Life and Human Dignity within the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. Jessica holds a Master's of Divinity degree from Notre Dame and a Bachelor's degree in Philosophy and Sociology from St. Joseph's in Philadelphia. In addition to her work in the Office of Life and Human Dignity, Jess is also completing a doctoral degree in systematic theology at Notre Dame. If you want to follow up on the resources or initiatives we will discuss today, please go to mcgrath.nd.edu slash life and human dignity. Jess Keating, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Jess, I wanted to start with an article you published in the summer of 2020 following the Supreme Court decision on June Medical v. Russo. And folks can remember that one. That's the one where the Louisiana law was struck down, which required physicians who performed abortions to also hold admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So that was the the case. Anyways, you wrote an article published in the Church Life Journal in which I was really taken by this. You turned around this well-worn saying that is typical of really abortion rights activists, which goes like this. Here's the well-worn saying. If men could get pregnant abortion would be a sacrament. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so the way I responded to that in the article was to flip it around and say that if men could get pregnant, surely they would insist on something better than abortion. Hmm. And sort of the impetus for, for that comment was the sense in which setting aside the legal particulars of the June medical case, abortion has been enshrined as a constitutional right on the premise that it is necessary for women's equality, for their true freedom, for their advancement in society. And this is certainly an unfounded and unproven claim, but there are pro-life feminists out there like Sidney Callahan who would say sort of the exact opposite. She says that women will never uh, climb to equality and social empowerment over the mounds of dead fetuses numbering now in the millions. As long as uh, women bear children, they stand to gain from sort of the constellation of attitudes and policies and institutions that protect the unborn and that they lose in those cultural assumptions that would seem to support permissive abortion. So even though it might be you know, temporary conflicts of interest, she wants to say that the feminine and sort of fetal liberation are ultimately one in the same cause. They're uniquely tied together, that, that women cannot gain social parity by becoming sort of wombless beings and participate as men in in our society, but that we gain equality by being equal as women with our particular gifts, and that being bearing children. That is what women do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that social equality must must not ignore that, but must actually integrate that into our fabric as a culture. Yeah, it, it's somewhere in the article you wrote, um, you know, basically, freedom is getting reduced in terms of equality on the basis of male womblessness, that this is these are the terms of mm-hmm. sort of the female liberation. And so, I mean, it strikes me there's an incredible irony there that this is an argument 
not only for women's rights, but also against kind of patriarchy and male domination. And yet the irony is that the standard for equality is male biology. Does that sound right? I mean, right. how it reinscribes maleness as the norm for participating fully in society rather than insisting on femaleness as being equally a way to participate in society and insisting on those policies and structures that support not only women who are pregnant, but women who are raising children, children themselves and families. So how how might we imagine a different understanding of equality that actually takes into account biological difference here, right? So how do we imagine what real uh, female liberation looks like in this case, if it's not in a male cast? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think, you know, at a policy level, it looks like institutions, both private and governmental institutions, offering robust health care for women and for pregnant women and children, I think it looks like extended family leave. Um, right now in the United States, we have sort of one of the most truncated family leave policies in the in the Western world, um, knowing how important that first year of life is for a child and for its parents uh, in terms of how it will develop later in life. Um, so I think it would look like expanding that, expanding support for childcare, of course, a lot of these policies will have to deal with the structural inequality that transcends gender in in our culture, meaning poverty, uh, race, things like that, that will have to be taken into account. Why why do poor women have a harder time raising children than women who are have more resources, both human and economic? And again, those women who are poor and often minorities express the deepest ambivalence about abortion and yet are those who are who seek out abortion because they are sort of cornered into this this unchoice, this situation in which they don't see other options. So I think that that's one piece of equality that acknowledges gender difference. I think, you know, another piece is bringing women's voices to the table in decision-making processes in um, both at governmental level, at institutional levels, both large and small, providing, you know, those those resources for women to access through sort of like all of their careers, if they are working women, from being young professionals to being mothers to afterward. I think we lose a great deal, a great number of women from the workforce through attrition because they are not supported through that critical childbearing and family period. They feel that they have to make a choice between one or the other. And yet women are valuable employees. So if you can keep women through that period, they end up being some of your best employees. In fact, they are some of your best employees. <laughs> they don't end up being. Right. But like, they, they continue to contribute to, to a company or to an institution, their various gifts. And often companies and institutions lose those gifts when they sort of allow women to leave employment based on sort of these like untenable situations in which we find ourselves in. I mean, I take very seriously what you said just a few minutes ago. I think it was in passing. Like it's a situation of unchoice. So in the name of kind of multiplying choice, now you have a choice for women. Actually, what's been done is that the choices have been taken away and the only choice remaining is the binary choice between child or everything else it would seem and so it really isn't a position of power it's a position of a different kind of binding where you're bound to terminate a pregnancy in order to have these other things right that's right and this 
sort of unchoice can also, that's one way that it inflects itself is in this binary. Another way in which it inflects itself is sort of in the, what I kind of sometimes call the privatization of pregnancy. If a woman has a choice, then carrying that pregnancy to term is also her choice. And she has to take sort of full, you know, personal responsibility for that without the help of society, of larger institutions, of networks of support. On the flip side, abortion becomes her often what she sees as her only choice because of different circumstances she might find herself in. So what you get, yeah, is this is this unchoice of you're given these two options. If you choose to have the child, imagine your partner saying, well, that's your choice. I'm not going to help you because this has now become solely your decision. And that's pernicious, I think, for women's advancement for their health for their well-being in society as valued members of society. So in both cases, you're saying, you know, there's this privatization of pregnancy that either the choice for life or the choice to terminate a pregnancy has been reduced to the individual's choice and taken away the community structure that would support the woman and the child, even when it's a choice for life, Mm -hmm. as you're saying, it's been privatized. I mean, it strikes me, too, that this is there's a sort of anthropological lie in that, right? And especially seeing this from a Catholic mm-hmm. perspective where our understanding of who the, who the human person is is social and communal through and through, that you're never, That's right. never begin and you never end up simply as a monad. You're always tied to and responsible for and do certain rights from others, right? So how does a, a kind of restored or a renewed right. anthropology help us to work up the kind of imagination for a new way forward in a society where abortion is quite permissible? Yeah, I mean, some of our laws obviously would have to change. Um, (laughs) But I think that that idea that we are, you know, abortion is often presented as presenting women with autonomy and freedom. And I think that once we've taken autonomy to this limit of being a monad, of being unaffected by others, by community, of sort of standing alone in the wilderness, mm-hmm. making your way through, then that is, it's not only destructive for women, it's destructive for everyone. So I think we have to start looking at the different layers in which our freedom is formed, in which community supports one another, beginning with family and extended family and working out into communities and then to institutions and, and, and to government. How this sort of idea that actually we don't make ourselves, we are given to ourselves in a large degree and that our freedoms are always freedoms that are embedded in a community in which we have both rights and responsibilities. Mm. And it's a community's responsibility to care for its members, Mm. especially its most vulnerable members. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with my colleague Jessica Keating of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where she serves as director of the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity. Now, Jess, uh, somewhat recently on, on the show, I hosted Trisha Bruce, the sociologist whom your office worked with to commission a study on Americans' attitudes towards abortion. And Trisha and I talked for two episodes, in fact, about that study. I'm curious about your own takeaways from that study and the report that she published. And for our listeners, if you're interested in downloading that study, it's available for free at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. But anyways, Jess, what were some of your key takeaways about Americans' attitudes towards abortion? Yeah, so this study was uh, the first of its kind, which sat down with over 200 
sort of average Americans to talk about what they think about abortion. But not only that, it helped us understand how they think about abortion. And I was struck by several things in reading over this study. I've had the chance to sit with it for a long time. The first is that Americans really don't know a lot about abortion in terms of the law, history, science. You know, they don't quite know when life begins beyond, you know, the philosophical question when life begins. They don't know scientifically when life begins, even mm -hmm. though this is an established scientific fact. They don't know about heart, the heartbeat or fetal development. Older Americans might remember Roe. Younger Americans might have never heard of it before. Nobody really knows about it beyond that it enshrined abortion as a constitutional right. So there's this real lack of knowledge and need for education for Americans. The second thing that I was struck by is that Americans don't talk a lot about abortion in their daily life. For many of the interviewees, this was the first time they had sat down and had a conversation about abortion. But they actually welcomed this. You know, the, the interviewers reported that they'd get callbacks, they'd get emails, huh. that this was a unique experience in their experience as interviewers. But the fact that people don't talk about it a lot also means they don't know how to effectively reason about the ethics and morality involved in abortion. If you don't talk about something, you don't learn how to think about it. And so we really saw this playing out in interviews. People are actually thinking in real time through these questions. And so we often see them contradicting themselves or correcting themselves. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing them do this for the first time, which I think gives us a lot of insight on both the need for education, but also how people are trying to put these pieces together. Interestingly, I think the study showed, and this is one of the takeaways, that nobody wants abortion. So this really belies the, the rhetoric from the abortion rights movement that abortion is a social good, that it is something that should be celebrated, that it is empowering for women. We certainly see that from the women who had had abortions, who were interviewed for the study, that that's not how they experienced mm -hmm. um, having an abortion. But overall, we see we don't see this um, instinct that abortion is a positive social good. It is, you know, at best a social evil that has to be tolerated. So our interviewees, and these are average Americans, know that this is a morally weighted issue and communicated that. There, there wasn't a single one who sort of said, abortion is great, it's great for women, it's great for society. The other thing that stuck out to me in this study was... There's the space for common ground in wanting to reduce the conditions that compel women to seek out abortion. Both those who identified as pro-life and both those who identified as pro-choice want to find ways to um, reduce abortion and want to find ways in which women don't feel compelled to seek out abortion. It's also important that on both sides, most Americans think there should be restrictions on abortion, some level of restrictions, which currently there are very few restrictions on abortion. And again, most Americans don't know that because they don't know about the content of Roe and most don't even know about Dovey Bolton. The thing that struck me in my work working for the Institute for Church Life is that Catholics aren't significantly different from the general population in how they think about these issues. That was disheartening for me, not surprising. And so I think it shows that we have work to do in our church communities and in our Catholic schools to help educate and form Catholics to understand why the church teaches that abortion is impermissible, why it is harmful for women, you know, all of these things that I've already mentioned. We have to do that in our own 
in our own church. Yeah, you know, I want to go back to that first point you brought up, which is you said that, you know, people don't know a lot about abortion, whether it's the law, the history, the science behind life, and therefore the termination of life. I know that a lot of the work in your office, a lot of the work that you've spearheaded is kind of improving and increasing the availability of educational resources. So improving education and increasing the availability of educational resources around issues of life, around issues of human dignity. How Can you give us a little bit of, a, of an insight into how you're trying to create kind of pedagogies for life out of your office and work with people really across mm-hmm. the country to help them teach these things better, which it seems would have a huge impact if we could do it because it's such, an, it's such a need. Yeah, and particularly in Catholic schools where you have increasingly a pluralistic student body. So right. you're reaching both Catholics and non-Catholics. The way we approach our resource development is, I think, pretty unique. So there's the issue of you know getting information out there. So we're thinking that you know our next big focus is going to be on science, on uh, fetal development and things like that. But But we try to create resources that can be used in different disciplines so that issues of life and human dignity come up across the curriculum and not just in, say, theology Theology, class. I think for too long, theology has, you know, borne the weight of having to communicate the entirety of the Catholic tradition and um, view of the world. So to try to integrate these into other subject areas. So that's, I think, really important. And that also, by the way, Jess, it kind of reinforces the the separation between science and religion, right? If you put all of this stuff that has to do with life and dignity on the shoulders of theology, you end up not doing the scientific part, the historical part, the sociological part, Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry to interrupt you. Right. Which all have need to be heard and have a place at the table when we're talking about educating young people. Yeah. So this, the second thing we try to do is to teach critical thinking skills. So one of the things that I've noticed in my work generally, I think it comes through in the study, is that we're not great thinkers anymore hmm. in terms of thinking through questions to their, to their logical conclusions, to thinking complexly about um, difficult issues, and to also thinking clearly in terms of you know, what the, what the ethical good is, what the moral good is. So we try to build that in to our, um, our lessons and resources, sort of this teaching people how to think as we're doing this educational piece on a particular life issue. And I'll give you an example. Please. We have a unit right now on historical atrocities. And what we, it's about disability selective abortion. We worked with um, Mary O'Callaghan, who is an expert in this area, to develop this resource. But we started with, with having students look at historical atrocities. Why? Because there's space between, between us and what's happened in history, so we can look a little bit more objectively at it, dispassionately at it. We can analyze it a bit more easily. And then we have them come up sort of with these critical attributes of what constitutes an atrocity. And then ask them to apply it to disability selective abortion and determine whether that is an unfolding atrocity, reminding, having reminded them that at some point all historical events are current. Mm. And that allows students to do two things, both first build up the critical thinking reservoir to have this more sensitive conversation, but it also allows them to sort of come to the decision for themselves. And I think that that's really important, allowing people to have the insight for themselves rather than necessarily leading 
with the um, contentious issue or the issue that's been polarized or or what have you, but allowing them to like move into that and have the aha moment is so important. That's how I became pro-life. I think that is the most effective way to to teach people and to actually, you know, help people to see see the beauty of life, see the value of life, see where we're denying dignity in our culture today and to become advocates for life. Mm-hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with my colleague, Jessica Keating of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where she serves as director of the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity. Now, Jess, you just said a very dangerous thing, which is that's how I became pro-life, which now is going to lead me to ask you, how did you become pro-life? Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you become so interested in promoting life and human dignity? And what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So it's it was a very long and circuitous process. But to give just the sketch, I went to a Catholic college. Was very inspired by the church's Catholic social teachings. So much so that I wanted to enter the church, which I did after college. Um, but I still had these deep reservations and even disagreements with um, the church on abortion, on issues of human sexuality. And it really wasn't until I started the MDiv here at Notre Dame. Master of Divinity, for those who aren't hip to the lingo. Thank you. um, That I was able to have sort of extended conversations with people who I knew, you know, I was in community with, who I knew cared for me to to some degree or another and were ongoing conversation partners that I had sort of the space and could relax into those conversations a bit. And it was a particularly pointed comment from... um, Michael Baxter, a former uh, CSC priest, I was doing a directed readings with him on the Catholic worker movement. And I very much liked Dorothy Day, but sort of didn't understand why she was pro- wasn't pro-choice. And he <laughs> said, well, listen, you know, and, and only the way that he can. Well, listen, if you think that if you think that the unborn are human, then we're talking about over 50 million are killed or 300 million now. But that struck me and forced me to really consider that if I held these convictions about the poor, about about racism, about the environment, about social justice and the church's Catholic social doctrine teaching, then I had to take this seriously. I couldn't sort of like wiggle my way out of it anymore. That if I said I cared about people, then I have to care about all people. I can't just Mm. care about, you know, the ones that I had been, you know, formed to see as valuable. So that was really the turning point for me um, in becoming sort of more interested and passionate about pro-life issues. I wonder, do you feel now like in some of the work that you're doing that you're trying to remove some of the obstacles that may have been there for you out of the way of other people who could think their way and feel their way and believe their way into something like this? Yeah, that's really the goal, right? I always have the obstinate learner in mind because I'm obstinate. Um, So how do you help people how do you help people have the insight for themselves or at least like think they're having this insight for themselves? Um, and if they think they are, then they are. If I had been engaged, I wish I had been engaged on these questions earlier um, and had sort of the room to talk about them. And, and part of that's me. And part of that is, you know, is my, the circumstances I found myself in. But the goal, I think, is to sort of re- remove those obstacles and allow people to kind of relax into these conversations and these questions and to have that insight 
earlier rather than later. It took me until I was 28. It would be great if we could help, you know, 17 year olds have this insight or 23 year olds or 20 year olds and really, you know, make it easier to understand and easier to be an advocate for life. I love that idea of having the obstinate learner in mind. That just sounds like such an excellent strategy for any of us who are teachers, for ministers, like have the obstinate believer in mind, like who you're just going to have to work a little bit harder for, take their reservations seriously, and think through what they're going to need and prepare for it as best you can, right? All right, Jess, we're coming to the end of our time here. So I want to ask you... You know, if people are interested in finding the resources, some of the resources you're talking about, a lot of the other things that are involved in your office, we only scratch the surface. Where can they find these resources? Yeah, they can find them on the McGrath Institute webpage um, at mcgrath.nd.edu backslash, I believe, life initiatives. We should know this. Like between the two of us, we should know this. (laughs) We should definitely know this. Um, (laughs) Yeah backslash life initiatives, and they should be taken to our office. I can double check that for you while while we're talking. No, it's all oh, good. It's back, okay. Oh, what is it? It's backslash what? Back, it's backslash life and human dignity. <laughs> all right. So mcgrath.nd.edu backslash life and human dignity. And most, if not all of these resources are free, right? For teachers, parents, others. They are free. There are a lot of fantastic curriculums out there that do some of this work on trying to help build a culture of life. We wanted to make it as easy as possible for teachers to incorporate it. So we have the ability to make them free and we wanted to offer them for free for educators. Very good. Well, Jess, thanks so much for spending the time. It's been good to have you here. Thank you. All right. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?